Welcome to this podcast from Penrith Church of Christ. If there is anything in this message that you would like to talk about further, please go to our website, www.cofcpenrith.org. That's www.cofcpenrith.org. Now let's listen to Pastor Dave Crocker. To love God, love people. That's what we're here for as a group. Last Sunday, I spoke about the theme that I believe God has been speaking to us to to focus on in the next little while, and that is a single simple word. It's the word now. As Christians, we spend a lot of time thinking forward and and vision, and and a lot of our our scriptures are forward-looking. We've got a lot of prophetic books in the Old Testament. In fact, the very last book of the Bible is a vision, a revelation of what the future looked like given to the disciple John. But we felt we needed to clear the power of now, of seizing the moment of living today. The Bible says that this is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. It says the time is now when true worshippers will worship him in spirit and in truth. It says today is the day of salvation. It says choose this day who you will serve. As for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. As part of what? I was looking at for love, we focused on 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I talked about the importance of understanding how we can love God and love people. And if you weren't here for those messages, they're on our website, so you can listen to them later. But I want to, this morning, start with 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 11 to 13. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put away... Put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection is in a mirror. Then we will see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three things remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Over the next few weeks, I'm going to be looking at those three things, faith, hope, and love. Because if they're going to remain, that means that they're already present. They're supposed to be part of our life and our experience now. That passage is laid with beautiful complexity and overwhelming simplicity. It's both forward-looking and focused on today. It's metaphorical and it's literal. There's two main metaphors that are used in that, that passage. The first one is one that every parent in the room will be able to relate to 100%. Maybe you're not a parent, but you've got a younger brother or sister. Kids don't think like adults. They don't speak like adults. They're often quite self-centered. That's not necessarily wrong. It's just part of the development of maturity in a a young person's life. I'm pretty sure we all know the toddler's rules of possession. If I like it, it's mine. If it's in my hand, it's mine. If I can take it from you, it's mine. If I had it a little while ago, it's mine. If it's mine, it must never appear to be yours in any way. If I'm doing or building something, all the pieces are mine. If it looks just like mine, it's mine. If I saw it first, it's mine. If you were playing with something and you put it down, it automatically becomes mine. If it's broken, it's yours. The one one thing we try to help our our kids to understand is that there are very few things that can't wait. Seems like the moment my wife gets up 
to go and do something. The kids choose that exact moment that there's some crisis that they need mum to solve and they begin to follow her out of the room. The, the second metaphor used there is that we see a, a reflection as in a mirror. We've got a distorted view of how things will be. It teaches us that we live our life now. We, what we experience here on earth is partial. It's not complete. It's a distortion of the life that is to come. We gain some insights, but we don't have the, the full revelation yet. We can experience parts of the kingdom of God. When miracles take place, it's an alignment of the kingdom of earth and the kingdom of heaven here and now. The day will come when Jesus will return in triumphant victory. The dead in Christ will rise. His government will be fully established. The earth will be renewed as God intends it to be. The partial image, the distorted reflection, our misunderstandings will be done away with. There will be a profound change. That's the forward-looking piece. But our theme for this season is now. And this verse gives us some clues as to what the coming kingdom of God will look like. These three things remain, faith, hope, and love. Faith seems to exist in the intangible realm. We can be so quick as followers of Jesus to say, you just need to have faith. Or just go and pray about it and it'll all be right. It rolls off the tongue so easily, but I'm not convinced that it's helpful at all. So if my view that information leads to transformation through application is true, we actually need a faith that works. We need it to be able to work on a practical level in our lives. The Bible teaches us a couple of things about faith. It says faith is being sure of what we hope for, I'll talk about hope next week, and certain of what we do not see. Simply It's believing in something that we can't prove. It's a gift from God, the Bible teaches us. It's God's designed way to distinguish between those who belong to him and those who don't. Because it says to faith, without faith, it's impossible to please God. God tells us that it pleases him when we believe in him, even though we cannot see him. It tells us that faith comes by hearing And hearing by the word of God, that's one of the reasons we gather together. And when we do on a Sunday, we begin to open the scriptures and talk about the scriptures. Because as we hear the word of God, it builds faith in our lives. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the word of God. But when it comes to faith, there's only a few things that I think we really need to understand this morning. Firstly, faith that works is active. James is the brother of Christ, and he's writing a letter to the Jewish tribes that have been scattered because of the persecution in the church in Rome, and he says this. Now, someone may argue some people have faith, others have good deeds. But I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. James isn't the only writer in the New Testament that that is strong and champions a faith that works hard. Paul also committed to this idea in in what would be called his most famous passage on salvation, which is about grace and not by works. The moment he finishes talking about it not being about works, he launches straight into the importance of faith being hard at work. Ephesians chapter 2, 8 to 10, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. 
And this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works that so, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So as soon as he's finished saying it's not about works, he launches straight into the importance of doing something. Our faith is supposed to be active. We're supposed to be participants in this. Well, let's briefly look at the, the life of Jesus and how that was outworked. When Jesus began his ministry, he invited some uh, what we call disciples, some students to follow him. But only those that actually chose to follow him experienced the discipleship that Jesus was bringing to them, the teaching that he wanted them to know. Peter and Andrew knew what it was because they followed Jesus, but the rich young ruler and others chose not to follow Jesus and they didn't experience that saving faith. Nicodemus slowly came to follow, but the other religious experts did not. I don't know if you've ever noticed a trend in the, the miracle stories of Jesus that we find in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. I don't know if when you've been reading those, you've, you've seen Jesus performing a miracle. More often than not, Jesus doesn't walk up and go be healed. He asks a question. He says, what would you like me to do for you? And he says that to blind people. The person's blind. It's kind of obvious what they want. But Jesus asks them so that they respond. They participate in the miracle or he asks them to go and do something. What about the paralyzed man when his friends cut the roof open and lowered him down in front of Jesus? Jesus says to him, get up and take your mat. He had to physically do something. He had to participate. Jesus could have healed him right where he was, lying down, but the act of him trying to get up, knowing that he was paralyzed, showed faith because he was working to do something. Apparently James was really dissatisfied with people who walked the talk but never got around to walking the walk. This is what he says in James chapter 2 and verse 19. You say you have faith for you believe that there is one God. Good for you. Even the demons believe this and they tremble in terror. How foolish. Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? <laughs> I read that passage. I imagine the tone that James would have said to someone if he was saying it directly to them. There's a really snarly edge to it. And in chapter 2, James then goes on to give us some examples of faith and work being hand in hand. One of them is illustration of Abraham and Isaac. This is in verse 21. Don't you remember that our ancestor Abraham was shown to be right with God by his actions when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see, his faith and his actions worked together. His actions made his faith complete. And so it happened, just as the scriptures say, Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. He was even called the friend of God. So you see, we are shown to be right with God by what we do, not by faith alone. It's important that our faith is active that we do something with what we are believing. Another example from Hebrews chapter 11, which is the, the book in, uh, that we often call the chapter of faith, Hebrews chapter 11. There's lots of stories of people of faith and how they put their uh, faith into action and actually did something. And one of them is the story of Noah, and it's a story that fascinates me because 
God shows up to Noah and says, Noah, build me an ark. Noah might well have said, God, what's an ark? He said, it's a big boat. Why do I need to build an ark? Because it's going to rain. Well, what's rain? Up until that moment, there had never been rain. The, the ground was watered from the earth. Streams came up from the earth, but it had not rained until that point. And God's telling him to build a boat because he's going to cause a flood because it's going to rain. None of that would make sense except Noah responded to God. He acted in faith and he did the things that God asked him to do. Can you imagine? Because it took a long, long time to build the ark as others came around, the comments they were making and how they would have laughed at him and ridiculed him and the moments where he might have stopped and gone, what am I doing? But he put his faith into action. So the first key to understanding faith that works is that we have to do something with it. Faith that works is faith that is working. See, faith is not saying God will help me pay this bill and then going and wasting our money on other things. Faith is not saying God will heal me from this lung cancer and then continuing to smoke. Faith is not a vending machine where we pull and we can get whatever we want. It appears to me that faith is responding to God and faith requires us to do something. Second thing from James that we need to know about faith is faith that works will be tested. James didn't waste any time getting around to the point of his letter. He starts it with a brief greeting and then straight into his first lesson. James chapter 1 verse 1. This letter is from James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm writing to the 12 tribes, Jewish believers scattered abroad. Greetings. And then straight into it. Dear brothers and sisters, when trouble of any kind comes your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete needing nothing. James is writing to a group of believers whose faith was being tested. The church was being persecuted. Christians were being put to death and they scattered throughout the known world and, and they, they took the good news of Jesus Christ with them. James is writing to these guys and saying, look, when your faith is being tested, we should be excited about that. Sometimes I think that we expect this Christian life to be one happy moment followed by the next happy moment. We come and we believe in Jesus and it's just blessing after blessing after blessing. I don't think it takes too long for that to begin for us to begin to realize that isn't particularly true. See, when we begin this journey, James from the very beginning is telling us we're gonna be tested. For some of you young guys that got baptised last year, just after your baptism, how many of you had trouble, had things happen, had, had hard times in your life? It's what happens when we experience God in some way and then we begin this process of getting tested. Maybe you're new to your faith and you're exploring what it means to be a Christian. Perhaps you've been in church for a really long time and you're still wondering why things are tough. Well, from the earliest days, the very beginning of the church, 
Persecution and trials were part of God's educational package. A faith that is tested has the opportunity to grow stronger, to a place where it works. So James is telling us today, when your faith gets tested, when you have hard times, we need to be excited about that or rejoice in it because we're about to tap into a faith that works. When we're struggling, we get so upset about it, and that's not necessarily a wrong response. When life is hard, we're not supposed to be jumping up and down and saying how wonderful it is because life is hard. But he's saying that we find joy, joy and happiness. So I haven't got scope in this message to unpack that, but are very different things. We can be full of joy and, not, and be unhappy and not have happiness in our life. I had a really hard time on a few fronts last year. and The weight of life was heavy. There are times where it was hard to keep moving forward. And I read passages like this, and things make so much more sense to me. But yet life can be hard. It can be horrible. Things can be happening to us that are beyond our control. Life carries on whether we're Christian or not Christian. But the good thing is that through those hard times, I learned some stuff. I grew. I think I'm a better pastor, a better father, a better husband, a better man than I was if I hadn't gone through those things. Because when we experience the hard times, it's an opportunity for us to grow. And I decided something a long, long time ago. If God was going to teach me a lesson in the hard times, I'm going to learn it the first time around. I don't want him to have to go, well, you almost got there. Let's try it again. Here's some more tough things. I want to learn those lessons. I want to grow. I want to allow my faith to continue to get stronger. The outcome of perseverance is a strengthening of our faith. Maybe you're like me and sometimes it's a bit slow. You're a bit slow when turning to God. Try to do things on my own and I might get through, but I really find that incredibly draining. When I take time to stop and pray and ask God for help and wisdom and then I do my bit, it can be encouraging and uplifting. It begins to build my faith. So faith is active. Faith is going to be tested. The last thing that... I think about faith is that it usually is in response to what God is asking of us. You read through Hebrews chapter 11. If you haven't read it before, haven't read it in a while, read Hebrews chapter 11 and the stories of people, most of them are Old Testament characters, but of the lives they lived and, and how they had to respond to what it was God was asking them to do, even when it seemed impossible. What could God be asking you to do today? The Bible's full of great things like feeding the poor. If you considered the direction of your life, what you want to do with your time, your resource. Some of you younger ones, have you stopped and thought about the fact that God might want you to go to Bible college or go on the mission field or get involved in a church or in a community in some way? Maybe you can't see how that could ever happen, how you will do it, how you'll pay for it, how... It'll work, but that's where faith exists. And the gap between where we are and where we feel God wants us to be. When I was 16, I knew I wanted to work in the church world. I didn't wait until things fell in my lap and doors opened. I got involved as often as I could. I served at my church 
as much as I could manage. I decided to go to Bible college even when I couldn't afford to pay for it. But I did something. I had faith in action. I trusted God even in the hard times. And faith existed because I knew God had called me. And even though I couldn't see how it would happen, I believed him anyway. I think I'm a person that has a decent amount of faith. And I think I have because it's active, worked hard to make my future difference. I've, different. I've trusted God in the hard times. And my faith grew as God continued to do what only he could do. <clears throat> By way of illustrating some of this this morning, I've asked if Janelle will, will share with us some of what she saw and experienced in Nepal. So Janelle, why don't you come on up here and... Ali, can you um, throw up that first slide? I had um, an amazing time in Nepal, as I do, but there was something about this time where we saw the hand of God at um, work. I actually saw a miracle take place. I'm going to tell you a little bit about that. Um, so the first few slides are, are just... Um, an example of what your faith is doing through giving through faith promise. So as you know, we have faith promise in this church um, as an expression of how we want to give to missions, be it locally or globally. And you give by faith to faith promise. And here is some of what your faith promise does. So this was the um, original bathing area in our um uh, orphanage at Dungadi, and I put it to you as a church that could we not come up with $3,000 to provide the children with clean water and a bathroom? And, and when I was at Dungadi, next slide, Al, that's the start of the bathroom. So it's not as far along as we had hoped, but when I go back in September, they tell me it will be finished. There are, is a door there, one for the boys, one for the girls. Next slide. It's another angle from it. What another church has done is that building that you can see that's been rendered is that they've paid for a dining room and a kitchen because they were eating outdoors. And so when the bathroom is finished, it will be rendered like that other building. Next slide. So inside the bathroom, next one. So it looks like this. They, they build it double brick and then render it. That's uh, the door to the right is the kitchen. The next door is the dining room. And so our bathroom is being added to the back of that. So your faith promise, as you operate out of faith to give to mission, is allowing these children a hygienic place to bathe and clean water. We're sinking a new bore. Um, which will happen shortly, and these kids are going to have the basic human right of clean water. Isn't that a, a great thing? Yeah. And we're part of that. Yeah. Next slide, Al. So this is what it looks like inside the dining room. They'll be tiling it in the next few weeks. See that little uh, square hidey hole on the side there? I asked what that was. That's a place for their Bibles. They don't like to put their Bible on the floor. The Word of God is very, very precious. And um, so you would never go into a church and see a Bible put on the floor. It's always put on a seat or kept on a lap. And this is the spot for the Bibles in the dining room for when they do devotions at night time. Next slide. These are our precious children. Aren't they gorgeous? 
Uh, this is our home at Dungardi. Pastor Sham's on the right. Uh, Laxmi is next to me. I did take gifts for all the children, of which they were very happy to receive them. Thank you very much. And they're just simply gorgeous children. And your sponsorship is enabling them to stay living in that hostel and to be loved and cared for. So great, great job, guys. Next slide. We also, um, through some sponsors here in Australia, were able to build three new toilets at the school that is a part of the orphanage that we are supporting. The school is called Mount Olive Academy. Might be um, an overstating of things using the word academy, but uh, there are 400 children that attend this school and they only had the two toilets up on the left. And now through IMM, and other Australian sponsors, we've been able to build them three more toilets. So um, it was great to see that, that happening as well. Next slide. I want to tell you about Asmita. So Asmita uh, lives in Pastor Minraj's house. And she arrived one week before we got there. And here's her story. Asmita comes from a Hindu family that live in central Nepal. And a man, uh, aware of their, their struggle to make ends meet and to put food on the table for their family, approached Asmita's parents and said that he could get her work in India and that if he paid them a sum of money, he would take her to India where he would introduce her to these people that would employ her. It was a good paying job. She would be able to send money back to her parents to help feed her family. She too would be able to have some income and it would be a win-win, a win for her family who would have food on the table and a win for Asmita who would have a job. A pastor became aware of this uh, negotiation that was going on with this man and he knew that this man was not who he seemed. He knew that this man was an agent for human traffickers. And what was actually about to happen was Asmita was about to be trafficked into India and into a life of prostitution. The pastor approached her family and said, this is about what's about to happen. He knew Pastor Minraj in Kathmandu. He rang Pastor Minraj and said, brother, can you help? Minraj said, get her on a bus immediately and get her to Kathmandu. So in the dead of night, Asmita was bundled up, put on this bus, sent to Kathmandu to meet people she's never met before. She doesn't speak English. And she's now living in our Pastor Minraj's home and they're teaching her domestic skills and they're paying her. She's helping to look after the orphans who live in Pastor Minraj's house and she's taking sewing lessons so that she will be able to start her own business. This girl was days off being trafficked when I met her and her life is about to change in ways she can only imagine. And unfortunately, about 12,000 girls and boys are trafficked each year out of Nepal into India, into prostitution, and that's how easy it is. Next slide. While we were in Nepal, we got asked would we take on a fourth orphanage. It was not what we were expecting but we prayed about it and we went and we met this pastor, Dilman, and his wife, Devika, 
and we met these beautiful seven children and how could we say no? So International Mission Ministries has taken on a fourth orphanage. These gorgeous children are now in our care to advocate for. We were very blessed on the trip to have the pastor from Singleton Baptist Church and his wife on our team, and we think that Singleton Baptist Church are going to take on this whole orphanage, just like we have the orphanage at Dungadi. So we added seven more children to our family. Uh, next slide. And this is how it works. If you wonder how this happens, we then sit down with the pastor, we go through the children's files because we have three criteria for accepting children into our, into our care. One is they have to be orphaned, part orphaned or abandoned. The second is that they have to be living in extremely destitute situations. And the third is that without sponsorship, they are at risk of trafficking or domestic or, or um, some sort of form of abuse. So we go through the files, we see the history of the children, we take down all the information. Next slide. And this piece of paper here, can you see thumbprints on the bottom of that piece of paper? That is either a carer or a, a parent giving responsibility of their child to the orphanage. They don't speak or, or write in English, so they put their thumbprint there as their um, agreement that they're, they're handing their child over to the care of the orphanage. Next slide. While we're in Dungadi, we got asked, would we consider taking community children in Dungadi into our program? And how do you say no? So on the basis of the three criteria that I've just uh, said, we sat down and I interviewed 11 children and their, their carers or whoever it was that was looking after them. And I want to tell you this story about Rohita. Rohita is 10 years of, old, 10 years of age. His parents both died when he was three in an accident. And so he has no uh, brothers or sisters and he lives with his grandfather, just a gorgeous Nepali man. And uh, his grandfather is a believer. And when we explained who we were and why we were there and what we were doing and would he be willing for us to advocate for Rahita for a community education sponsorship, the grandfather began to cry and tears rolled down his cheeks. And I was very concerned that had we offended him or was there some cultural thing that we weren't aware of? And this man said, I called out to God to help us, and he sent you. And so we have taken Rohita into our program. Next slide. We also, apart from the children, we did church planting. So for two weeks, we had 100 church planters in Kathmandu with us undergoing training. 65 new church planters and 40 existing church planters. And so they're just amazing men and women of God who have heard the call of God on their life and said, yes, I will plant a church, a new church. Next slide. I want to tell you about this couple, Regenda and Sunita. Who went, when you got married and you're on your honeymoon, did anyone go overseas for a honeymoon? Yep. Did anyone travel in Australia for a honeymoon? One weeks, two weeks, yep. These guys spent their honeymoon doing church planter training. 
So they were basically just married a few days before the course started and they spent the first two weeks of their married life doing church planter training. When they leave, they're going out to, to plant a church. They were such an inspiration. Next slide, Al. And so I just want to tell you four quick stories. Jay talked about the cost of faith, faith in action. Faith is, has to be done in word and action. And so I want to tell you about Minna. Minna is 22. Minna was married at 16. She married a Hindu man. After she was married, she actually became a believer, which was a huge problem because... Um, you know, Hindu and Christian, it kind of just doesn't work very well. And her husband said to her, you choose. You choose me or you choose your God. She chose her God. At 18, she was divorced, which is a really huge deal for her because there's a lot of shame associated with that. Her family want nothing to do with her. And at 22 years of age, she wants to plan a church. 16 married, 18 divorced, 22, this young girl is going to go and plant a church. Rajendra, this young man is 15 months out of prison. He was falsely accused for murdering his girlfriend. His girlfriend actually committed suicide. She hanged herself, but he was accused of, of murdering her. He spent... Eight years and seven months in prison before the court case was all worked out and they decided that he was, in fact, innocent. He went into prison as a Hindu man. While he was in prison, he became involved in the prison fellowship. He was so long in prison, he went on to lead the prison fellowship. He's 15 months out of prison. He came to the church planter training he wants to tell everyone that Jesus saved his life. Amen. I want to tell you about Pawana. Pawana is also a church planter. A number of years ago, Pawana was in a bus accident. There were 30 people on the bus she was on. It rolled down a cliff. 29 people died. She was the sole survivor. She spent a number of years in a wheelchair before her feeling in her legs came back and she's able to walk again. Pawana came to the church, planter training. She's blind. She was blind in one eye. That's a trauma that's been caused by the accident that's never been rectified. And while we were doing the church planter training, one of our trainers, Craig, said, I feel really compelled to pray for this woman. So we held hands out. Craig put his hand on her eye and he said his hand was like fire. He said, my hand is just like burning. And he kept praying and praying for this woman and we prayed for healing for her and we said goodbye. The next day in training, Pawana was missing and we were concerned for her. She showed up that afternoon and she came running, Pastor Craig, Pastor Craig, I can see. I've been to my optometrist this morning and he said, there is absolutely nothing wrong with my eye. Pawana was healed, yeah. It was amazing. 
It was amazing. Pawana plants churches. And Pawana has also taken some orphans into her home. And, of course, she said, I hear that you facilitate for orphans. We said, yes, we do. Would you come to my home and would you see the orphans that I have and see whether you will advocate for my orphans? And we said, well, you know, this is our procedure, this is our criteria and we will not say yes unless we come to where you are. Where do you live, sister? Well, you know how Dungadi is the end of the earth? Where this woman lives is off the edge of the earth. So it will take us a four-day round trip to get to Dungadi, where our orphanage is, and then another eight hours north, almost to the Chinese border, to visit this woman. But God puts this stuff in our hand to do, so he'll make a way, I have no doubt. And the man on the bottom, Man Bahadur, Man Bahadur was an atheist. He wanted nothing to do with Jesus Christ. He wasn't uh, too fussed on hin- in Hinduism. The Hindu gods hadn't done much for him and his life was spiralling out of control. He was a chronic alcoholic. He was at the point of ending his life. A friend of his said, the Hindu gods have done nothing for you. Why don't you see whether Jesus Christ or hear your cries? And he took him to a church meeting. And at this church meeting, the message of the day was the prodigal son. And Man Bahadur, he sat in that meeting and he said, I felt a hand on my shoulder. I felt the weight of a hand on my shoulder. And he said, I heard a voice say, son, you are mine. Come with me. And the power of God came on that man. He became a believer then and there. He hasn't touched a drop of alcohol since, and now he is planting churches. You see, guys, I have 60 other stories. These are the church planter profiles that we filled out in the interviews we did while we were there. I have 60 other stories of the power of God and the transformation that God makes when people step out in faith. And here's the thing. People say to me, why why do you think Nepal is seeing this mighty move of God? Why do they see miracles that we long for but we don't see? And you see, here's the thing. I think they're prepared to sacrifice. These 65 church planters are going to leave their homes to go to a new location to plant their new church. They're going to take their families with them. They're going to leave behind their friends and, and, and extended family members and they're going to go to a place that they don't know and they're going to plant a church. You see, they give it all. They give everything. And I can't help but feel, and I'm as guilty of this as anyone else, that we want our Christianity to be convenient and comfortable. And those words don't exist in their vocabulary. They love Jesus and they're prepared to sacrifice it all. I could tell you many more, but time is really against us. Come to Nepal with me in September. We're taking a team. Young people, there's a youth team going in November. 
Get out there, get a part-time job, save your dollars, you've got to get there. Worship team, you can come and join me. Isn't it inspiring seeing what is happening? Stories of, of people stepping out in faith. And, and I love that. As, as part of what we're doing this year, I introduced it last week, the our concept of traffic lights, where we want to actually put our faith in action. And I want us this week to maybe commit to one act of faith, maybe something small, but I want us to get out of a comfort zone. So first, Alison, can you put the first one up? Trying? Okay. It'll come up in a moment. There we go. Maybe you're a red light. This idea of faith is really new to you. Maybe you're, you're really new in your, your Christian walk and you haven't really explored this yet. Here's an idea of something you could do this week. Maybe you could pray for someone you know who's sick. Ask them, can I, can I pray for you? Maybe ask God this week to help you build faith by trusting him more. If you're a yellow light, that's, you kind of get this right sometimes. You, you, you've been around a while, you've got a bit of faith. But maybe think about where you're at in your life. What could God want you to do in the coming season? Can you trust him for a change? Maybe it's serving in a role at church that stretches you, maybe a program in a community. Maybe taking on more responsibility at work. Finally, green light. Green light means that you're, you're good with faith, you're used to trusting God. Maybe if you've got it sorted, maybe you could trust God for something new. Maybe you could be praying for those around you that are struggling, that are having a hard time. Step out in ways that you haven't before. God, I thank you that we can experience the great and miraculous things of your kingdom. God, I thank you that faith is a free gift from you. And God, it's faith that leads us to salvation. But God, it doesn't end there because you ask us to do something with our faith. Help us to be people that have faith that works hard. God, that we trust you and believe in you, but we do what we can. God, help us to stand strong through the trials and the persecutions of life, knowing that our faith can be built. God, help us to turn to you and ask for your wisdom. God, may we continue to grow as we trust you. For those here that faith is new for them, struggling in this area, God, give them strength, I pray. God, for those that are persevering right now, are struggling through the, the toughness of life, God, I pray for a strengthening of their faith. God, may we see you at work. God, may we know your hand leading and guiding us. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Penrith Church of Christ. If there was anything in this message that you would like to talk further about, please go to our website on www.cofcpenrith.org. That's www.cofcpenrith.org.